Dotnet Rocks, episode 1016, with guest Adam Tornhill. Recorded Wednesday, July 16th, 2014. Thank you very much, and welcome back to Dotnet Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. Adam Turnhill's here. He'll be with us in just a second. Should be a great show. Mr. Campbell, how are sir. you, sir? Ah, uh, you know, I've been making corned beef. I'm prepping to do some pastrami in the later in the summer. That's so cool. Yeah, it's so. I mean, the problem is I got the corned beef recipe nailed, so I make really awesome corned beef, and it takes about a month to make it. Yeah. Because it has to pickle. Right. And th- but I have now I have to experiment with pastrami, which means take your corned beef smoke and smoke it. Right? Smoke it. And you don't want to mess that up because the corned yeah. beef was awesome. Right. So, <laughs> it's, it's painful for me. And so, yet you have fun. to take little pieces of corned beef and smoke them to do the test, right? Yeah. This is sort of mass. There's a mass problem. You need about five pounds of meat to oh, really man. make the smoke work. But I've got, I've got a new experiment to run. It's going to be great. And remember Rock and Ronnie Shuchuk? Yeah. That we did the barbecue show with. Right. Uh, this is a prep for he's coming out to my place to uh, to do some cooking in August. And so we're going to uh, I'm going to experiment with the pastrami with him. That sounds great, man. It's going to be awesome. All right. Let's roll the music for Better No Framework. Hit me. All right, buddy. What do you got? Well, today I thought I would do the Richard thing and read a comment, but this actually is a Better No Framework. The comment uh, was on the show uh, 1009, Amazon Fire Apps with Jason and Brian Kriesel. Oh, yeah. We, that show just like published today. Well, yeah, as of this recording. Yeah. Yeah. So, but this is going to be uh, at the end of the month, so 15 days ago or so. So. Anyway, um, this is from Anato Amalda, who said... Hi, Carl and Richard. Jason and Brian mentioned the problem of managing images that are allocated in the unmanaged heap. Mm-hmm. Right. So, out on the comm side, the, the native yeah. API side. The not .NET side. This is a common scenario in .NET, kind of like when using native computer vision libraries. Fortunately, in .NET, it's fairly easy to add garbage collection to unmanaged memory management, just derive a class from one of the safe handle implementations, and override the release handle method to free the unmanaged memory. This will guarantee that a reference is held for the entire lifetime of the handle instance, and that the memory is released even when exceptions are thrown. And this is where it gets interesting. And we've talked about this before, but it's you know it's coming up, especially now that we're doing all these mixed native things, right? Right. For a better memory management by the garbage collector, don't forget to call gc.addMemoryPressure and gc.RemoveMemoryPressure, gc being the built-in garbage collector, which you generally don't need to mess with. Yeah, most of the time you shouldn't touch this, but here's a great scenario where you would. Right, so the garbage collector knows exactly how much memory is being used. So basically, if you know you have a a JPEG or a bitmap or something like that, Mm -hmm. and it's taking up two megabytes of data, you say GC add memory pressure and you pass the, you know, two megabytes, the number, and then remove memory pressure when you're done. And basically, the garbage collector knows how much memory is being used because it has no way to know otherwise because the garbage right. collector is in managed land. Yeah, and it gets its allocations normally through .NET when you declare variables. Right. And he points to an implementation of the IPL image 
in OpenCV.net. And OpenCV.net is a computer vision library that mm-hmm. I've, I've messed around with a little bit. In, and one we referred to in the vision show we just did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. But I have since messed around with it. And man, talk about DLL hell. <laughs> I forgot what that was like. Uh, but you can, and I, I tiny URLized that link. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash GC pressure, it is actually the source code that shows how to do this. So oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's all I got. GC dot add memory pressure and remove memory pressure. Be should be a part of your mixed uh, interop story if you're doing using uh, if you have big binaries and if you have big blobs in memory and you want to be responsible with that memory too. Yeah. I guess it's got to matter more when you deal with it on a phone as well. Yeah, on a phone and even on a on a Windows app that's not just going to run once and close because right. you know if you just close it then the whole process goes away and you're fine but if it's going to load and unload images and stay in memory then you have a problem you have yep. to deal with it that's true yeah nice find dude yeah thanks and thanks to anato amalda and you know we're going to send you a mug anyway because you know we use this on better no framework yeah we read we your s- comment we mentioned it on the show so we're going to mention two comments on the show today yeah so who else is talking to us Richard? i grabbed a comment off of show 1001 and that's the one we did with mark seaman where we talked about flow at ndc this turns out to be one of the more popular shows we've done recently ah uh, yeah it really resonated with a lot of different people and this comment's from nick barrett he says thanks guys for another great show i was listening to this episode while getting ready for work this morning and i found the discussion so interesting that i ended up being late for work. Oh, okay, that welcome. is not an influence I prepared to have. <laughs> mm, okay. <laughs> so we'll we'll send a note to your boss. Yeah. <laughs> I am personally finding it hard to get into the zone these days. Mm. While I consider my main job to develop code, I am also responsible for a large amount of user support. Even though I can have days with no support queries at all, I find that knowing that a support query could pop up at any time to be quite debilitating. Mm. This is particularly a problem for me when I have to tackle a large piece of work and it's going to take a long time to load up my brain before I can even get started. All that time and effort can be blown away at the whim of a user deciding that now is the right time to discuss an idea they had. Don't get me wrong, I'm all about my clients and I don't begrudge any time I spend with them. I simply find it difficult to get past this mental barrier sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that particular paragraph is one of the reasons I read this comment because that's certainly something that resonates with me. You know you can estimate the amount of effort for a given piece. And I'm not just talking about writing code, writing a good article, yeah. writing a good analysis. You need that quiet time and you can have this pressure leaning on you that you know you could be interrupted at any time. And that is so distracting. Yeah. You just don't even try. Like there's no point even attempting to get into the zone on that. So I, I totally dig where Nick's coming from. Totally. This. I lived it. Year Without for years, doubt. absolutely lived Well, it. And I think it's one of the things that happens as we get older and take more senior roles on that are far more interrupt-driven. Yeah. You just get to a place where it's like, there's no way I'm going to get enough time to do this. So again, we end up working late at night. Hmm. What did you say? You measured uh, your productivity in the num- in the uh, in the minutes between interruptions? Yeah, the interruptions number- per hour. Right. Right. And the correct interruptions per hour for me for a piece of work like that is 0.25 interruptions per hour. So every four hours you yeah. could be interrupted. And if somebody comes in and interrupts you, you change the number on the sign. Yeah. Right? Well, that's how I was expressing my frustration that the interruption is the issue. Yeah. doesn't matter what you want to talk about or anything like that. Once you've interrupted me, it's done. It's over. I'm interrupted. Yeah. Yep. 
Nick goes on to say, I believe that there are many things to take away from this great episode, but the part that struck a chord with me the most was about decomposing larger problems into smaller chunks of work. I think that this is what I personally need to focus on. Stop tackling the big problems head on and instead get better at dissecting them first. Hmm. And that's something that Mark really focused on was because what, you know, we keep talking about trying to find uninterrupted time. Mm -hmm. But in the show with Mark, he said, no, what you got to do is be better at getting back into the flow after being interrupted. And part of that is making the work small enough that you're just not fearful of engaging in it. Plus leaving good tells so that you can pick it up quickly. And that, yep. so, and I think Nick really resonated with all of the, what Mark said there. And uh, Nick wraps up by saying, thanks guys for the hard work and making Donut Rocks a great show. And it is thanks to Mark for being part of this awesome episode. And that's from Nick Barrett. So Nick, thank you so much for your comments. As you can set, tell, Carl and I completely resonate with your position on this and uh, we're all trying to get better. And a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows Phone 7 and 8, Windows 8, Android, and iOS. And that brings us to our guest today. Adam Tornhill combines degrees in engineering and psychology to get a different perspective on the cognitive and social challenges of software. In his day job as a software consultant, Adam works as an architect and a programmer. In that role, he often codes in C-sharp, Java, and Python. In his spare time, he's more likely to hack Clojure or Erlang. Adam's also published an open source library for building distributed Erlang nodes in C++. He's the author of the popular Lisp for the Web tutorial, has self-published a book on patterns in C, and is currently writing Code as a Crime Scene for the Pragmatic Programmers. Other interests include modern history, music, and martial arts. A well-rounded person you are, Adam. Welcome. Oh, thanks. Hi. Great to be here. Well, great to have you. So, we're talking about psychology of uh, developers, or psychology of software, users, all of the above. What is this all about? Oh, well, I think it's about, uh, it's the mixture, because... Um, I got pretty convinced that uh, we as developers, we have um, our primary tool. It's not ID, it's not the compiler, it's not even the computer. It's the brain, and uh, that's what I'm after, to try to understand the brain a bit better, to figure out how it works so we can write software that actually fits the way our brain wants it. I see. So I guess this uh, comment that Richard read about flow resonated with you as well. Yeah, sure. And uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, listen to Mark Seaman at NDC. It was a really interesting session live, too. And what did you take away from that? Oh, well, I um, uh, obviously I read a bit about flow myself, but uh, I like how he uh, presented that, that um, you really have this large task, but don't try to do it in, in one sitting. Break it down. Be prepared for interruptions, because that's basically what he does. He designs his work to... Um, uh, to be able to react to uh, potential interruptions, and uh, I haven't talked about that before. Yeah, I, I was. I'm like you. Was was very intrigued with his uh, with his talk. And the, do you think that uh, this idea of learning how to get back into flow quickly is is something we should be focused on? Do you have any tricks for that? Uh, the only trick I have. Uh, first of all, I think it's um, it's. It's a really hard problem. I think it's terribly hard to hack it. I think yeah, we will always uh, take damage when we get interrupted. But um, the trick I'm using is I try to use music to get back into the flow. Oh, yeah. 
I buy into that too. We did a show with Guy Smith Ferrar a while back um, when he was experimenting with the emotive headset right. and watching how music affected his brain waves mm. with the idea. And I don't know that he got all the way there yet, but there was this idea that imagine being able to measure your brain's behavior in flow and what music helped encourage that so that you could literally have the music switching itself to the right things mm. to get you into the right mental state. Isn't that interesting? But you probably know what music does it for you. Is it, uh, do you have to be in a particular state of mind to listen to a particular piece of music? Or uh, is there always a go-to piece that works for you? Uh, I think in general, you have to be careful with the music issues. Uh, music with lyrics tends to be distracting for us. That yeah. actually prevent, prevents us to get into the flow. Um, so you want um, instrumental music and uh also, I try to avoid my absolute favorites because I, w I don't want to focus on the music. I want to focus on the work. So I just want that uh, as a, to shut out the environment, kind of. So you listen to a lot of new age music then, I guess. <laughs> smooth jazz, yeah, I mean, maybe. Yeah, I mean, normally I'm, I'm listening to a lot of metal. But when I try to get into this zone, I try to pick something like the Dead Can Dance, something ambient. I, I'm personally um, attuned to Medeski, Martin, and Wood, and John Schofield, and that kind of kind of strange, funky stuff. But, it's almost uh, the thought that you shouldn't like the music too much, because then you want to listen to it. Like, it, it, you just want it to shape an environment. You don't want it to be a focal point. Mm-hmm. Which is really twisted, because you'd think you want to play your favorite music. But most of the time with my favorite music, I really want to listen to it. Yeah, I, I don't know, Richard. I can put that stuff on in the background, and I love it, and uh, just focus on my stuff. It doesn't distract me at all. gets me in the zone. I realized how much music shaped my behavior when my wife could tell what work I was doing by what music was playing. Isn't that funny? Yeah. It's like, as soon as she heard certain music, she's like, oh, you're writing. Huh. Interesting. Um. You talk about forensic psychology a lot, and you write about it uh, in your your writings, in your book. What can software developers learn from this? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's where I got the code as a crime scene from. <laughs> uh, my idea was this. Uh, uh, we actually, as an industry, we actually know a lot about how we write good code. Uh, the problem is, I think, that all the books uh, on the subject, they start from scratch. But uh, as developers, we rarely write code from scratch. Mm. I mean, uh, greenfield projects are really rare. And even if, when you have a greenfield project, you start um, start to work on it. And after one hour, you're basically in maintenance mode. Yeah. You're modifying existing code. Yeah. Uh, so that's where I thought, how can we kind of optimize for that? How can we learn to get into a large system, to pick out the weak spots in that system, see where the design issues are? Where are the productivity bottlenecks? And uh, that made me look to forensic psychology because they're actually facing much the same problems, open-ended, complex problems. And solving a crime is a lot like debugging, isn't it? Yeah, it's well, maybe. It's like a, like a murder story almost. Yeah, isn't a criminal a bug in society? <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> Squash the bugs. <laughs> But I totally agree. It's a diagnostic process, right? It's figuring out what was the... Well, how many times have you looked at code and said, even your own code, what was I thinking? Mm. 
I do that every day. <laughs> With me, I, I, I see the evolution. I see, oh, I wrote that when I didn't know that. Or I wrote that when I didn't have that, you know. So I'm constantly bringing old stuff back, you know, dragging it into the future, kicking and screaming. Yeah, this is really the study of incomplete knowledge. Yeah. And being okay with incomplete knowledge. That's the thing. It's like, I have all the confidence in the world that at the end of the day, it's going to be perfect. But, you know, you have to live with it being in a state of imperfection until it's perfect. Yeah, and I think it's also important to realize that we are never really done. I mean, uh, software always evolves. Yes. And uh, I think when we embrace that, we we're actually able to write better software. We really have to live with that imperfection and realize uh, it will get better over time and optimize for that. Yeah, and I think the confidence part that Carl speaks of, too, comes back to believing that you made the best decision at the time with the knowledge you had. Right. Obviously, you have more knowledge now. Just the act of writing the code uh, improved your knowledge. But you made the best decision at the time. I think you've got to sort of deal with that belief, and then you know you can always make it better. And when you have that little, you know, that little bell goes off in your head, ah, oh, you know, I really should refactor that. Don't put it off. Do it. The sooner you do it, the easier it's going to be. I don't know. That's that's my two cents. Yeah, and not look at like like it's a failure that you have to refactor. Right. And refactor is an opportunity, not a concession or a mistake. Yeah, yeah. Are we crazy here, Adam? Is, is, is this is is this a psychological conversation? <laughs> no, not at all. I I pretty much agree with you on that. Uh, the problem I was looking after was that. Um, we have that large system and we know we need to address the weak spots in it, but how do we find them? That was, uh, what, that was the kind of inspiration I was looking to forensic psychology for. Well, bef before you tell us how you do that, I need to say that this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by dnsimple.com, simplifying the process of registering domains and providing headache-free DNS services starting at just $8 a month, online at dnsimple.com. Okay, Adam, how do we identify productivity bottlenecks in large-scale code bases? Uh, yeah, um, the approach I have been investigating and tried out a lot is um, inspired by geographical offender profiling, actually. You know, we have... Um, when, I talk, when I give talks about this uh, subject, I always, um, I always do a case study of Jack the Ripper. Okay. Yeah, he's rarely mentioned in software developer at the software yeah. developer conferences, but yeah. And uh, All right, I don't so. think we can learn much from him, but um, if you look what the forensic psychologists would do if the Ripper case was today, they would look and see, okay, we have these five different crimes and we have them linked together. We know it's the same offender. What can we learn about the offender? And then you have to realize that each uh, crime scene, it carries information about the offender. Because for a crime to occur, of course, of course, you need an overlap in time and space between an offender and a victim, right? Right. Okay. So what they do with the geographical offender profiling is that they uh, consider each crime scene a center of gravity. And then you just weight them together, more or less. You make some small twists because um, psychologically all distances aren't equal. And then you get a new center of gravity. And that's a much, much smaller area. And you have a extremely large likelihood that the offender will be located there. 
Oh. So, yeah, so that's, uh, I start to think, how can we apply this to software? And, um, you know, ge geography of software, that isn't that hard. That's a solved problem. We have a lot of ways to visualize software. But what, what about our spatial movement within that as programmers, our spatial movement within a system? So I start to think about that, and um, we actually have that information too. It's just that we don't think about it that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a version control history, of course. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so um, and what are we trying to, we're not trying to identify who the developer is the same way we're trying to identify who Jack the Ripper is. What no. are we trying to identify here in terms of what's the crime? What's causing the bug? Yeah, it could be. It could be um, to try to proactively identify buggy code. Uh, right. Parts of the software that will have bugs in the future, but also uh, unstable areas because it turns out and this was fascinating to me that it turns out that there has actually been quite a lot of research on this within the software industry. And uh, it turns out that um, if you look at version control history and you identify the modules with the most number of revisions, the code that changes most frequently, uh, you will find that there's a huge overlap between that code and the bugs. Interesting. So because the code has changed routinely, it tends to be buggy code. Yeah, the impact of change is very, very high. Right. Or is it? Or is that just a symptom of the fact that the code's already got problems, so it's constantly being changed to compensate for those problems? It could be. It could be that um, the code has uh, quality issues from the beginning, but it could also be that the feature area isn't particularly well understood. Right. Mm-hmm. So where we find bad requirements or bad definitions, we're probably also going to find fragile code, code that's got problems and needs lots of changes. Yeah, we probably will. So what kind of tools, what are the forensic tools that you're using to determine this is an area that probably has issues? Oh, uh, right now I'm just using my own tools. I have a set of uh, closure programs and some few, so a few Python scripts that I'm throwing at the version control system at the, and at the code base. But uh, I'm going to open source all those tools That's soon. cool. So you're doing analysis on the code. What are you looking for? Uh, I look at different things. First, I want to identify that uh, what I call hotspots. And that's those areas of the code that change most frequently. Right. And then I look, uh, that in itself is not that interesting because that may well point us to something like a configuration file that we expect to change repeatedly anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, so also look for um, I look for an overlap between um, high change frequency of the code and complexity. So if I identify sure. complex code that changes frequently, we probably have a problem. That's right. right. Yeah. So a little cyclomatic complexity analysis alongside matching bug reports to given blocks of code. And if you think about it, that's what you do when you're debugging too. I mean, if you're just writing some code and you've got, I don't know, code in four or five different places that you're working on, something breaks, you know, you, you probably have a good idea instinctively that it's in the complex code that you're working on, not the, not the simple stuff. Yeah, that's, that's often the case. I think, um, the, the problem is that with, with today's uh, development projects, uh, large-scale projects, you may have so many different developers involved and so many different teams, and you may even be located physically in different parts of the world. 
So it gets really, really hard to get that holistic picture of the code. But of course, you probably have a pretty good idea where the problem is when you detect something. I know when I've been deeply knowledgeable about a code base, like somebody just has to basically say, I had a problem with X and you pretty much know where to look. And you usually roll your eyes is like, oh, there again. Yeah. Yeah, that's just a sort of side effect of uh, the challenge is knowing a code base well. Where this gets really evil is when there's lots of people working on something and nobody knows the whole code base well. That's why I'm really I'm fascinated by the tooling to help a newcomer or, or an overall analysis of a project to say, here are the hotspots. One tool that I found I can't live without now in Visual Studio is CodeLens. This uh, tells me how many references there are to a, a particular method when I'm looking at it. Um, you know, who's working on it? Who was the last person to change it? When did it change last? Just by hovering over this little highlight right above the method. And uh, it's particularly helpful if you're, when you're refactoring, you know, knowing that, oh, that, that method is no longer being called because there's no references to it. It's just great. And I find I find that I feel like I'm sort of lost without it. <laughs> I'm getting very dependent on it, which is, you know, good or bad, depending on your viewpoint. Yeah, that's really good. I think uh, we will see much more tooling support for those kind of uh, real-time analysis because we, we really need them. We need all the help we can get. Software is just too complex for us. And clearly getting more complicated. So do you use yeah. cyclomatic complexity to evaluate complexity? Uh, sometimes, not always. Um, what I found is that if you read up a bit on cyclomatic complexity, you find that it has a, it doesn't perform much better than their rough lines of code, actually. Really? Yeah, it's a bit depressing because I, I used to rely a lot on cyclomatic complexity, but now I my go-to now is lines of code because that allows me to... Um, uh, compare multiple languages at once. It may well be that I have my application code written in C-sharp and uh, automatic test code written in uh, Python, and I want to make a holistic analysis of all that code to find right. patterns in that. It's almost unfair to some languages. Some languages are more verbose than others. Just counting lines of code seems kind of unfair. Uh, yeah, it is. It definitely is, but... Um, the problem, the the good thing is that it's such an easy metric that um, you don't need that need any specialized tools, and uh, you don't need multiple tools if you have a polyglot code base. So I think the the advantage has really outweighed that. And then it does definitely encourage terseness, as few lines of code as possible. Mm. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Oh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to call the cops on Jack the Tester. Oh, no. Really? Jack the Tester. Jack the okay, Tester. Okay, I got to write that one down. Don't use the Jack the Tester joke anymore. <laughs> oh, boy. It's time to give away. You know, when you don't laugh, I know it's bad. Uh, yeah, when you, when your best joke is mocking your previous joke? Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. 
But before I tell you who won today, become a UI superhero with the DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Cody Bashford. Congratulations, Cody. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club, you have won the D Experience subscription. That's a box of goodness from Developer Express. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com. Click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and uh, every show we give away great stuff like this. And every December, we pick one member at random and shower them with $5,000 of technology that they pick themselves. It's a shopping spree to end all shopping sprees. And we like to ask our guests, Adam, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, what would you buy? Oh, um, you see, I'm such a music fan, so I would go with something really cool there. Uh, I would go with this uh, beautiful loudspeaker for streaming music from uh, Bang & Olufsen, Bioplay A9. Yeah. You're going to need a bunch of them (laughs) to spend five (laughs) grand. (laughs) I don't know. Bang & Olufsen speakers can get pretty expensive. Well, depending on which model you're talking about, yeah. It's the A9 Bioplay. I think it's something like $3,000, $4,000. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're getting up there then. There you go. Yeah, the Bioplay A9. Look Mm. at this toy. I don't know. I could get you a lot of power, a lot of great sound for that in conventional speakers. and If you just take the brand away, right? Yeah. And speakers is one of those things. It's not as bad as cables. And I'm looking at you, monster. Because <laughs> generally, when you spend money on speakers, you get pretty good quality speakers. They, it's not like they do nothing. Yeah. But uh, you can also get awfully good speakers that are just not that expensive. Now, I'll tell you this. I just pulled up the A9. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Like, it's a work of art. That's the thing. Is It's absolutely beautiful. It is a, it is a, ra- a disc on like a wooden easel-like stand. Yeah. So that, okay. It's still awfully expensive, but it is awfully pretty. You know what we use in the studio, Richard? What's that? The Mackie HR-824s and also a, a, a subwoofer. I have a JBL subwoofer. So with those studio monitors, they're active studio monitors, about 700 bucks yep. a piece, and those sound so good. Yeah, no. Yeah. You can you can knock people over with those in the studio. The studio is a big space. And they're powered monitors too, so the power amp is in the monitor. Same with yeah. the subwoofer. You know, a good a good eighteen inch, sixteen hundred watt powered subwoofer would be about a grand. Yeah. Nice simple solution. Yeah. But look at the A nine and tell me. Tell me you, you would you would kick that out. It's beautiful. It I is gotta beautiful. tell ya, but you have yeah. impeccable taste, Adam. Yep. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Okay, let's dive into this uh, psychology of programming further. Because, you know, you have you did this whole talk in NDC. Are there other pieces just beyond analysis for the thinking around software? Oh, yes, there is. Um, 
and uh, when I did that talk at NDC, I st- pretty much uh, started from the bottlenecks in our brain and uh, try to reason how do we write software to work around those bottlenecks in the brain instead of trying to fight them. Right. And um, So what kind of bottlenecks? Oh, the number one bottleneck is definitely working memory capacity. Working memory capacity. So remembering what you did. Uh, yeah, not not really, because um, we have different memory systems. And working memory, that's more like uh, a mental workbench. Something mm-hmm. we use to integrate, manipulate, and reason about things in our head. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's vital to us as programmers, because that's what we use when we try to understand something, when we try to understand a function, or when we try to translate a concept into code. And uh, the problem with it is that it's strictly limited. There's right. just so much we can keep in our head at once. Are you a fan of uh, sort of brain hacking, you know, this sort of transdermal uh, cognitive stimulation stuff that people are using now or any other kind of brain hacking things? No, not really. It's, uh, it sounds pretty scary to me. It is. It does sound a little scary, doesn't it? Yeah. I have, however, bought a device that I have yet to use. If you go to uh, the website, URL is foc.us, and it's about... Two ninety nine, I think, or is it one ninety nine? I can't remember. But anyway, it's it's geared for gamers, but um, it will help you sort of get in the zone of any kind of spatial task. Which I don't know if it's going to help for coding or not. But uh, but there are certain places on the brain that you can stimulate with low levels of electricity to to uh, to improve your ability to learn and to to think clearly and all of that. That's not scary at all. Not scary at all. <laughs> Let's send some electricity into our brain and mess around with it. What could go wrong? <laughs> That's Mary Shelley. Nice. <laughs> it's alive. <laughs> um, readability. Is this uh, the most important factor to optimize your code base for, or... Would you say it's right up there with organizing code in, you know, different folders and places where you can easily see it and keeping uh, keeping good records of where your code is? I would say that those two go hand in hand. Uh, because uh, uh, the organization of our programs, uh, subdividing them into folders and files and modules, that's one part of making software readable, of course. Mm. Uh, but I think it goes deeper than that, and I think it relates to what I said about working memory. And uh, first of all, I think readability is so important because um, if we look at the research on software and look at what, where we actually spend our time, it turns out that we spend the majority of our time modifying existing code. Mm. And yeah, most of the time we're just thinking about how should I make that change. So, uh, yeah, that's where we can actually save money and make programming more fun in the process, I think. So taking a speed typing course isn't going to help you, really? <laughs> no, not really. That's not the bottleneck. Would be an easy fix, I think it's fix, interesting. Though. Like, you struggle to understand code when it's heavily decomposed. But you also have this workbench limit where you can only understand so big of a problem at a time. And so you need to break that problem down into smaller pieces so you can understand it and execute on it well. But that's going to spread your complexity around right. essentially so that it's harder to pick up yep it's a it's a constant struggle and balance yeah 
that's a trap I actually went into a lot, uh, say, 10 years ago, that I, I found that uh, today I know that just because some lines of code look familiar, that doesn't mean they should necessarily share a common abstraction. Right. Uh, because, um, and today I actually allow, if uh, those familiar looking lines of code, if they represent different features, uh, then I just try to express that using the right names for the functions and methods. And I actually allowed the deplication because uh, they express different concepts and uh, the two parts may well evolve in different directions. Absolutely. And uh, I would say that, yeah, and I think that um, the don't repeat yourself principle, it still applies because it's about knowledge, not about code. Right. Sure, sure is. So if you're not really a fan of external, you know, uh, hacking for your brain, what can you do? software-wise for your brain, in other words, just with natural things, what, what do you do to overcome the limitations of, of your brain? Uh, the first thing I, I tried to do was to learn more languages and um, learn radically different languages, things that actually affect the way you think. Such so as functional, I, the functional languages? Is this why you got into Erlang and, and the functional stuff? Yeah, that's one of the reasons. Erlang is a great example because it's uh, quite different from virtually all the mainstream languages of today. So it will uh, definitely give you a completely new design space to operate in. And, that, and I don't deny the idea that learning other programming languages or learning to program in general alters your brain. What do you think happens when you learn multiple languages? Why does this, why does this make you a better programmer? Uh, first of all, I think you get you get a different perspective on what you're doing. Um, take stuff like uh, concurrency, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. That's one of the things where Erlang excels. And uh, what struck me about concurrency is when I started to do Erlang, I realized that, well, my sequential Erlang program and my concurrent Erlang program, they look identical. Mm -hmm. They... Uh, you basically, you get that different perspective on a really hard problem. And I think that's valuable. And that's ideas that you can take back with you into whatever technology you're working in right now. Well, I mean, you know, you were also focused on Tercetus too. I got to think that switching to different languages uh, helps you express stuff more briefly. Uh, yeah, that can well be. And, um, I think it also uh, allows you to stay a step ahead because uh, take C-sharp, for example. As I started to do uh, C-sharp uh, seriously, that was about the same time that uh, uh, Link got into the language. Right. And if you already, yeah, and I mean, I already had, I was fortunate to have uh, some experience with functional programming, so I could relate Link to list comprehensions and stuff like that. So it allows you to pick up um, new language features pretty quick. Yeah, and, I, and clearly, as the more languages you learn, the better you get at learning more languages, too. Like, you start thinking in a very meta way about how languages work. Yes, I'm pretty convinced that that. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do most of the time, that I try to, instead of really, really learning specific stuff, I try to build a platform for learning. Mm-hmm. Mm. Do you think the different areas of language, sort of static versus dynamic, uh, functional versus imperative, does that matter a lot? Do you, do you really go after very different ways of thinking? 
Uh, I'm not sure about static dynamic. I program a lot in both disciplines, and uh, I really don't see those big differences when I when I get down to it. Because uh, uh, yeah, of course you design a little bit different, but I don't think it's that fundamental. But I think um, uh, stuff like uh, if you go functional or if you choose an imperative language, I think that's a huge divider. It's a right. we're in two completely different worlds, and uh, that's. Yeah, so the, it's really the functional thinking. I mean, most of us have worked in the other languages at this point that is opening your mind to to programming more efficiently. Yeah, I definitely think uh, it is that way. And um, I mean, if you look at, um, if we go back to psychology and look at that, uh, I don't know if you've ever done an IQ test, an intelligence test. And uh, it's interesting if you do that because you see you have those, um, a typical test is like Raven. Uh, progress uh, matrixes and uh, every, every conversation richard has with everybody else is an intelligence test <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> for them <laughs> i got i got tested a lot as a kid and and those who know how my memory works realize i get sensitized to tests very quickly yeah so uh what i want to say was just that if you look at those typical tests you have a series of figures and uh, your task is to figure out how it continues right yep and uh, if you look at that you see that the more things that change between each picture the harder the task gets and that's the essence of mutability that's imperative programming hmm. it puts a lot of cognitive load on our brain and we are we are really really bad on keeping that in our head all that stuff and try to manipulate and figure out how it goes on mm-hmm uh, so I think that's where um, functional programming really excels. It's much, much uh, nicer to our working memory. Yeah. It, so you're saying that by programming in a functional language, you're actually changing the way you think. You're changing the, the rewiring your neural network to to think more functionally. Yeah, you definitely do that. You have to think in a completely different way, but it's... Um, uh, for me, at least, it took a long time. I, I, I grew up uh, writing object-oriented code. It took me several years to really grasp the functional nature. But once I get there, I find out that my the way I write object-oriented code changed as well. Right. Hmm. That's really cool. Yeah, it's it a, is. An interesting, an even bigger encouragement to dive into this now rapidly expanding world of functional programming. Do you think the brain is more functional than it is object-oriented? <laughs> I'm not sure. Our brain is definitely based on uh, mutability. Otherwise, we won't, wouldn't be able to learn anything. So, yeah. Right. And, <laughs> and it certainly does seem to, you know, be very visual in terms of, you know, thinking of ideas as as images and in, in that, you know, you see in your mind's eye. Yeah, it is. It's also massively parallel, the brain. So, perhaps that's a testament to the power of Erlang. Yeah, deep down, all our brains are running Erlang. We just didn't know it. <laughs> we just didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> it's an Erlang world. You're just living in it. What um, what happens when you introduce a team? Oh, a lot of things happens. Uh, you get immediately, you get all of those uh, communication challenges. Of course, I mean, it may be the only way to actually scale your development efforts to go towards teams, but... As soon as the code base outgrows the head of a single developer, you're into a completely different world. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, I mean, it, it has been known for quite a long time. Uh, one of my favorite books is uh, The Mythical Man Month by yep. Fred Brooks. Great book. And, Classic. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic. And uh, yeah, he, ha- he has this concept that, um, I mean, some things are just natural to paralyze, but software isn't one of them. So it takes a lot of effort to actually scale to Teams. To actually, and getting people to work simultaneously on a problem is very hard. And that's what you're trying to do when you have a team writing an app. Yeah, exactly. And you always have to um, try to come up with ways to uh, minimize your process loss. And um, But in my experience, it's, uh, it's a huge challenge. And uh, we could definitely, as an industry, do better by having a look at what social psychologists do. Because uh, they have been studying... Uh, the same setting, the social setting that we're, we're actually in large case development projects. That's actually a social activity, right? Mm. Right. Um, so if I'm just going to pick one thing that we could do better, I would say it's uh, brainstorming. Well, and I also think how much architecture has to do with enabling a team to work in parallel. That actually sitting down and having a real design of the system so that you create clear points of decomposition and then you can decide on the interfaces, nothing else, and let everybody work in parallel against those interfaces. Mm. Like that seems to be the role that, that an architect plays more than anything is just in letting everybody work smoothly. Yeah, you definitely have to design to allow parallel development. Right. And uh, that's one of the things I've been looking into too with... Um, uh, with my studies I do on uh, version control data by trying to mine that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you really find interesting things. This happened to me a couple of years ago. I worked in a pretty large company and I needed a change to an API. It was a pretty small change. And uh, it took one week to get that changed. So I asked, uh, why did it took so long? Was right. it complicated or what, was the, what happened? And uh, the developer told me that, oh, I had to make this small change in my code, but then I had to ask another team to change their API too. And mm. it turned out that my small change uh, rippled through, I think it was three or different teams. Wow. And uh, yeah, uh, so that's what I'm looking into too, to kind of measure that, to get metrics for that and identify those patterns because they are getting expensive pretty soon. When again, you get back to that, if you architect carefully, one of the things you architect for is... Uh, instability or volatility so that when changes come in, they are quite encapsulated. If you have something, if you have a change that, that resonates a whole system, you're, you're basically guaranteeing a big disruption. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. I just love this whole side of analyzing source code. Like you want proof that people are actually working in parallel. There should be check-ins for multiple people around the same project in different areas at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like you could, I don't know that I've ever done that analysis and I'm a junkie for this sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Richard's got a new tool. Uh oh, Watch out. Yeah, because that's one of the things I'm uh, working on. If you have the, if you have this code base and it's divided into different parts with different teams responsible for each part, uh, you can actually measure that. You can see how many people from that team worked on that code together with people from the other team and you can actually identify your real, actual communication structure in code, not the one on an organizational chart, but the right. real one. Hmm. 
The real one. That's what are people actually doing? Not what they say they do or not what they're told they should be doing. Yeah. What are they really doing? What are they really doing? Wow, Love it. Great stuff, Adam. So when can we expect your book? I really hope it, uh, or let me put it this way, it must be done in December because uh, me and my wife, we are expecting our child. So I have a really hard biological deadline. <laughs> All right. That's, you did right. That's awesome. <laughs> if you don't get it done then, it's not going to happen. Oh, yeah, definitely. Man. So <laughs> I'm writing as much as I can right now. So you're both going to give birth around the same time, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only undoubtedly hers will be more painful. Oh, my goodness. Well, Adam, go. this has been a great uh, almost hour, and it's pretty much flown by. Thank you very much. This is great stuff. Yeah, thanks to you, too. It was great to be here. All right. And before we uh, say goodbye today, I want to give a shout-out to my friends, the Womacks. They used to be the Womack family band. Now they're just called the Womacks, and they have a great new CD out called WFB. And I'm going to leave you with a first song on this, which is called Carry Me Home, Mama Maria. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Mama Maria, Mama Maria, won't you carry me home? Mama Maria, Mama Maria, won't you carry me home? set him straight she said oh no no don't raise your voice this child's got a mind to make her own choice this child's got a mind to make her own choice mama maria mama maria won't you carry me home to carry me
nice and I feel alright. This place is kinda nice and I 